Welcome to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. I'm D.T. Kane, author of the epic fantasy series The Agersfar Saga and The Spoken Books Uprising. Each week, I read from one of my novels, discuss my writing process, answer your questions, and have general discussions about fantasy fiction. It's like a book club, except I do all the work for you. Find show notes, info about all my novels, and much more at dtkane.com. Here's the show. Hello there, friends. Welcome back, or welcome if you're a new listener, to D.T. Kane's epic fantasy book club. Today is July 10th, 2023, as I record this, which is episode 40 of season two of the podcast and episode number 67 overall. And we uh, we are doing something a little different today. As I've been saying, we are going to be uh, discussing another author's book, the Brittle Master of Head by Patricia A. McKillop. Um, if you are new to the show, maybe you're joining because you heard I was uh, I was doing this read along. Welcome. My name is D.T. Kane. I am a uh, fantasy author. I write the uh, I write the series called uh, The Spoken Books Uprising. The first five books of the series are out right now, and I am. Uh, plowing my way through the draft of the sixth one currently. That takes place in a world where you can uh, only cast magic by uh, reading spells out of rare magical books that are called spoken books in my world. And uh, the catch is uh, only the wealthy elite in that world can read. Uh, They uh, don't let anyone else become literate, so they are able to hog all the magical power. Well, sort of. They hog it, but um, most of the elite cannot actually, uh, they're not capable of drawing magic from the books, so uh, they enslave all the people who actually can cast the magic uh, and force them to read spells for them, but they never teach them how to read, so it's kind of a a complex uh, uh, societal structure there. So anyway, we're not here to talk about the Spoken Books Uprising, but that's just a little bit about me. Um, so why don't we jump right into our discussion of Riddle Master? Um, so this is a trilogy, and we're only talking about the first book in the trilogy here today. I'm gonna try to keep this discussion to about a, about a half an hour. Um, once I get going, sometimes I have a little, uh, a little trouble stopping, but, um, I think we'll be able to keep it, uh, here. Um, this is a new, uh, format for me, so so bear with me. I, I think I'm just going to kind of walk through a synopsis of the book and kind of uh, share some observations I have along the way, uh, and then I'm going to talk about some of the themes in the book, my favorite non-main character, um, and then I've picked out some prose and quotes that I found uh, either particularly well-written or interesting for one reason or another. Uh, and I'll share a few predictions about what I think is going to happen in the rest of the trilogy. Um, I've purposely not read books two and three of the trilogy yet, so I can't accidentally spoil anything. Uh, though I suppose that's a good point. Uh, there are going to be tons of spoilers ahead. So if you have not read uh, Riddle Master of Head by Patricia A. McKillop, 
uh, you should probably turn the podcast off now because I'm about to spoil it all for you. <laughs> so uh, here we go. Uh, you know, at the beginning of the book, we we open with uh, an interesting first line here. Kind of draws you in. Morgan of Head met the High One's harpist one autumn day when the trade ships docked at Toll for the season's exchange of goods. Um, kind of laying out there right away. Uh, you know, the High One is capitalized, so that's obviously some very important person in this world, but he has a harpist. That's interesting that, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, the, the high one's representative for the high one's, I don't know, captain of the guard or something. No, his harpist. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about him shortly. <clears throat> um, though the, even that opening line there made me realize, um, I'm probably going to mispronounce a lot of the names <clears throat> in this book. So I'm just going to apologize once here ahead of time. It's got, uh, some, some strange names to say the least. So, <clears throat> uh, there you have it. But okay, so chapter one, this is all about kind of uh, establishing what I like to refer to as uh, the main character's Shire, uh, which is a reference to uh, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, of course. But, uh, you know, you have to establish, you know, the character's uh, status quo right before they're launched into their adventure. So Morgan is our main character, and he apparently is the, the prince of this island and nation that's called Head, H-E-D. Um, and, uh, even though he's a prince, that seems to be the, the head person of the island. Um, we learned that his parents just recently died and he was, uh, the land rule passed to him, um, which we don't immediately learn, but that's actually kind of like this, this magical thing where, you know, he has a sense for like, you know, all the plants and the trees and everything in the land. Um, and that passes automatically from, the current ruler to the to the heir when the when the current ruler passes away, <clears throat> so Morgan has that power. He has two younger siblings, uh, Eliard and uh, Tristan. Eliard's a younger brother, and Tristan is a younger sister. Like I said, they've all seemed to have grown up a little too fast here since their parents died the the previous year. <clears throat> you know, and it seems uh, Morgan is still kind of uh, settling into his role as as leader. Right, you know, uh, it seems both his uh, younger siblings are, you know, they're not exactly just listening to him, right? <laughs> like, like, he, like he's the he's the guy in charge. You know, his sister seems to have taken on kind of a a motherly role, um, you know, kind of uh, scolding them for, uh, you know, not not keeping clean, not keeping the house clean, and things <laughs> things like that. Um, and Eliard, I think at, at one point they get into like a fist fight, and he he, punch, he punches Morgan and knocks him down in front of a a bunch of the a bunch of the farmhands that Morgan is supposed to be the leader of. So, you know, uh, you know, still getting used to his new role here. <clears throat> Obviously, um, we get a description of Morgan up front here. He has uh, hair and eyes the color of light beer. He is. Uh, Slender and proud, and he has a trick of looking at people remotely, like a fox glancing up from a pile of chicken feathers. <laughs> um, you know, that's in contrast to his kind of burly brother and uh, demure sister <clears throat> here. Um, 
quickly. So they're, you know, we get about a page of them, you know, going on about, you know, the ships that have docked in the, uh, in the harbor and, uh, you know, what they're going to be trading with them this year. But uh, then his sister reveals that Morgan has been hiding this crown under his bed for the past six months. Uh, apparently he won this crown in a riddle game from a, from a ghost. Um, and his brother and sister are upset about this because apparently the ghost would have killed him if he had lost <laughs> the riddle game. You know, they're, they're upset that he took such a risk when they need him here uh, farming uh, on the island of Head and, you know, kind of lead, leading the island after their parents died. Um, you know, though we do see that Morgan is, uh, you know, Morgan is dedicated to his brother and sister, right? You know, at one point his brother says, how will I know now that when you leave Hedge, you'll come back? You know, Morgan says, I swear this, I will always come back, which perhaps is foreseeing that he'll be going away or foreshadowing that he'll be going away again, uh, very soon. Um... You know, event, uh, initially we're you know kind of like a, a riddle game. What is what is that? But you know, we quickly learned that Morgan's father let him go away to the College of Riddle Masters in uh, Caithnard, which apparently is out of the ordinary for for someone from from Head, much less its heir. Seems that people there kind of keep to themselves and and don't go on adventures, which <laughs> sounds kind of familiar, right? We were just talking about the Shire, so just like the the hobbits of the Shire tend to keep to themselves and. They look down on uh, Bilbo and Frodo for being adventurers, right? You know, kind of the same thing here at Head. Uh, you know, I think one of Morgan's farmhands early on says, "You know, you shouldn't, you know, <laughs> you shouldn't let your uh, your interest in riddles interfere with your with your job here." So obviously, it's kind of Morgan seems to be kind of an oddball here, even though he is the the leader of the island. <clears throat> um, so after we kind of set that scene of Morgan settling into his leadership role and, you know, uh, the family dynamic between him and his younger siblings, he's uh, out alone playing his harp, and he meets the, the High One's harpist, whose, uh, whose name is uh, Death, uh, D-E-T-H, uh, not D-E-A-T-H, though I, I've been trying to figure out if his name is supposed to be some sort of reference to dying, uh, I don't. I don't know that I've really figured figured that out uh, quite yet. Though certainly death is about to lead Morgan on lots of uh, dangerous adventures here. <clears throat> uh, the High One seems to be some sort of god or mythic figure or a ruler of the known world here. Um, yeah, I think as the, the further along we get, he's kind of considered all three by different people throughout the land. He uh, at least allegedly sent death his harpist to express his sorrow to Morgan and his family over the death of his parents. <clears throat> um, then as Morgan and death are, are talking, it, you know, it comes out that, uh, you know, Morgan has this, uh, this crown, um, and it seems that the king of, uh, An, or Anne, A-N, his name is Matham, has promised his daughter's hand to whoever, uh, wins the crown uh, from that ghost who apparently was one of his ancestors. Uh, the daughter's, or the king's daughter's name is uh, Ray Durrell, R A E D E R L E. Morgan knows her because he was good friends uh, with her brother at college. So here's our inciting incident. It seems, uh, you know, it's a little, it's a little rush here. Um, you know, all of a sudden Morgan's like, oh yes, you know, I would be interested in, in marrying her. So he agrees to 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 sail away with uh, the 
the High One's harpist to go see uh, to see about claiming uh, Ray Durrell's hand in marriage. <clears throat> um, so that moves us on to the next chapter. Um, on the way to, to Anne, or on, to, to claim uh, Ray Durrell's hand, they stop in uh, Caithnard, which again, that's where the, the college is and the, uh, the master Riddlers reside. Um, we learn on the way that death is a thousand years old. He was born after the founding of Lungold, which is the city of wizards, which uh, we learn has since been destroyed, and all the wizards have mysteriously disappeared from the land. <clears throat> um, Morgan checks in with Rude, who was his college roommate and who is the brother of, of Ray Durrell. That's how he, he knows her, and apparently <laughs> he formed a crush for her while he was in college there because he'd met her He'd met her there at Caithnard several times. Um, I think when uh, when Rude learns that uh, Morgan is the one who who claimed the crown from uh, the ghost, uh, he gives a great shout, which is some sort of uh, you know magical ability that breaks things. Um, Rude says it's a thing of impulse. It, you know you're not supposed to use the great shout, but he's so surprised that. Uh, his friend Morgan is the one who who beat this ghost at the riddle contest, um, you know. And it seems that Morgan had no idea that um, there was a prize for uh, claiming uh, for winning the riddle contest. You know, when Rude asks him why he challenged the ghost, he just says, "Because I had to do it, for no other reason than that, and I didn't tell anyone simply because it was such a private thing." Uh, the book never comes right out and says it, but he apparently challenged the ghost shortly after his parents died and you get some sense that he's guilty about that he kind of feels like it's his fault because um his parents had gone from head to Caithnard because you know uh he was going to college there and his mother was interested in uh in seeing the big city i guess because like i said people don't or rarely adventure uh, out of head there, uh, but on their return journey, the their boat was caught in a storm uh, and sank. So there's obviously obviously some guilt here. You know, maybe Morgan kind of rashly just kind of threw himself into this contest with the ghost. You know, after uh, you know after the guilt was catching up to him about uh, his parents dying. <clears throat> um, so after he talks to Rude, then he goes to the eight masters of the college and tells them about his his riddle game. Um, he used a riddle about someone called Kern of Head to stump the ghost. I guess the idea was you told each other riddles until one said a riddle that the other didn't know the answer to. Um, and I'll be honest, I didn't really totally understand the riddle about the Kern, about Kern of Head. And I don't think we need to get into it now, but the kind of the takeaway from that was, uh, no one, uh, seems to really pay attention to Head. It's kind of this island off the East Coast, uh, of the continent, um, you know, and even this ghost who was, uh, you know, allegedly knew all the riddles there were, uh, did not know, uh, about this riddle that came out of head. <clears throat> um, Master Ohm, though he is the, the head of the masters of the college, notes, though, that there is a riddle without an answer out there, and Morgan might not be here if the ghost had asked him that. Um, in fact, uh, Morgan recalls that he and Master Ohm had spent a whole winter searching for the answer to this riddle, but found no mention of the three stars in any of the writings of the wizards. Uh, again, the wizards, uh, they seem to have known just about everything 
there was to know, but they have now uh, mysteriously disappeared from the land about 700 years prior. <clears throat> um, we don't learn it right here, but we soon learn. It, 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 it's a, it was a little confusing for a few pages, but then we learn, well, the three stars are important because uh, Morgan has three uh, stars marked on his face. So that's why they were trying to figure out this riddle. No one knows why he's got these three stars on his face. <clears throat> um, Rude, Morgan's roommate, is that's R-O-O-D, uh, by the way. Uh, you know, he says Morgan uh, should go ask the high one for the answer uh, to the riddle, who apparently lives in a mountain all the way uh, north. Uh, Cainthard is kind of in the south of the continent. <clears throat> Uh, Morgan does not want to do that, though. He just wants to settle down and be a farmer. Uh, he wants to marry and then, quote, go home and plant grain and make beer and read books. Is that so hard to understand? Uh, no, Morgan, <laughs> it's not. Uh, that sounds like a pretty good life uh, to me. Uh, but this is a classic example of our hero resisting the call to action that often happens uh particularly in fantasy books that are based on uh you know the uh, the hero's journey which is yeah kind of the the typical uh plot structure for lots of these these fantasy novels um you know there's the the famous the famous book by um what's the author's name jo joseph campbell the hero uh with a thousand faces it's kind of a book that analyzes uh, that whole hero's journey uh, in detail. Maybe just a quick, couple quick examples. You know, in, in The Hobbit, Bilbo does not want to go with the dwarves uh, on their journey to, to defeat Smaug initially. Luke Skywalker in Star Wars does, uh, you know, he thinks Obi-Wan is crazy when he wants him to come be a Jedi initially. So this is kind of a typical typical plot structure here so far but then when morgan says he doesn't want to do that rude says uh he'll never accept being a master if it's given to morgan before he finds the answer to the riddle of the three stars which that's pretty bold right or blunt or or rude i don't know if the author is uh if miss mckillop intentionally uh named him rood to kind of play off the fact that he's being kind of rude to his friend here uh, basically saying, you know, I, you know, he's obviously at the college to become a, a master and earn the black robe of a master. But he said, if you give it to Morgan, I'm not gonna, I won't take it. I'll be insulted basically. <clears throat> so why is he so insistent that Morgan, uh, find the answer to this riddle? Um, Rude then kind of storms out here. Um, and Master Ohm subtly encourages Morgan to find the to find the answer. You know, he says, I suspect a journey to the high one will not be as useless as you think. Um, and of course, <clears throat> I'm assuming you've read the book here already. Again, spoilers here. So, uh, you know, shut your ears or turn the podcast off if you don't want any spoilers here. But obviously we, we later learn that uh, Ohm is uh, likely uh, uh Grishel Ohm or something. He's got a very weird long name, but basically the founder of Lungold, and uh, which is the city of the wizards. He's kind of hiding in plain sight. Um, 
Uh, he also seems to be the high one. <laughs> you really you you don't learn that at all really until like the very end of of this book one. But it's interesting here that he's encouraging uh, Morgan to go see the high one, <clears throat> and then we kind of get what you know I think in traditional plot structure is the theme stated, usually about you know uh, ten to fifteen percent of the way through the book some character will basically tell our hero the theme of the story, and of course the hero will ignore him. <clears throat> so uh, Master Ohm relates this story about a harpist called uh, Ilon, I-L-O-N, who offended uh, King Har with a song and fled to the mountains. Um, but he never stopped harping, and his harping was so beautiful that word of him spread all the way back to the king. And of course, this King Har uh, is able to to shapeshift into a wolf, and he sought the harpist out. Um, we will actually see King Har again later on in the story. Uh, and of course, the the lesson of that tale we learn is that the man running from death must first run from himself, which of course is impossible. Um, but Morgan responds to that by saying, uh, I don't see what that has to do with me. I'm not running. I'm simply not interested. Um but I think that probably the main theme here of the story is, you know, f- you know, finding or accepting one's self for so much of the story. Morgan is uh, running away from what is obviously uh, the path that is meant for him. Uh, you know, so kind of accepting your place in the world or what you're meant to do is certainly a major theme here of the story. That's that's referenced here. <clears throat> you know, and Morgan, or then Ohm, Ohm tells Morgan with a subtle smile, then I wish you the peace of your disinterest, Morgan of Head. You know, obviously, Ohm. Ohm knows that Morgan's not going to be able to stay disinterested for very long here, no matter what he wants. So then uh, Morgan leaves on a ship that evening, uh, but he wakes up at night, uh, and mysteriously all of the crew uh, has disappeared, except for Death, the harpist who was with him on the ship. Uh, and then the ship sinks when it hits a storm. So we go into the next chapter here. Morgan wakes up on uh, a beach with amnesia, and he can't speak. He's rescued by this uh, recluse named Astrin uh, Yarmis, or Yimris, Y-M-R-I-S. There's not enough vowels in that name. Uh, also, Astrin has this wildcat named Zell. Turns out he is the exiled land heir of the land of Yimris. Uh, Astrin's a sort of archaeologist. He's living in a kind of like a hut near this archaeological ruin uh, of a city of the long gone Earthmasters. Kind of another mythic race here that's disappeared from the land. Something terrible happened long ago that destroyed them and their cities. Astrin is trying to figure out what that was. <clears throat> and Morgan, since Astrin has no idea who Morgan is, Astrin kind of takes him in and Morgan starts helping him with his archaeological uh, endeavors. But then Astrin is attacked by some creature that came out of the sea. Uh, and here's an example of some prose that I liked from the from the book here. It was shaped out of seaweed and foam and wet pearl, and the sword was of darkness and silver water. Um, so it sounds like Astrin killed this creature but was injured, and Morgan helps nurse him back to health. Uh, once Astrin gets healthy again, uh, they, distra- they decide to travel to Canethard, uh, which, again, is where Morgan had just come from, where the college is, to try to figure out who Morgan is. But on the way, they get waylaid by a couple of traitors who try to kill them. Uh, Astrin kills them instead. Uh, but Morgan is injured. 
uh, and then word uh, that uh, the king's heir just killed two traitors uh, gets back to the king and he kind of sends like a little army to, you know, bring his, uh, his brother back to the, back to the castle or, you know, arrest him if he doesn't come willingly. Uh, Death, the harpist is there with them and he's relieved to find Morgan uh, unharmed, though Morgan still doesn't, uh, you know, remember who he is. Um, on the way back to uh, Yimris, uh, we learn that there has been news of a strange rebellion brewing among the coastal lords, which, you know, I guess again is interesting because there's strange creatures coming out of the sea. <clears throat> um, and we arrive at Yimris. So, apologies, I just knocked something off my desk there. But uh, we arrive at Yimris, uh, and in the king's hall there is this beautiful harp with three red stars set into it you know obviously matching the stars that are on morgan's face and the sight of it seems to shake morgan out of his amnesia and his his silence and that brings us right into chapter four we learn that the harp was found by a fisherman the year prior and made no sound until morgan touched it it was there was some sort of muting spell on it but morgan is uh, is able to play it um in subsequent conversation here, we learn that one of the merchants who attacked Astrin and Morgan had died two years ago. So there are either dead men walking around or things that are able to take on the appearance of dead men. Uh, we meet King Hiru, who is Astrin's brother. Uh, Ariel is King Hiru's uh, wife. Um, and we learn that Astrin apparently left because he saw Ariel die before the wedding. Uh, but then a woman looking like Ariel <laughs> showed up at the wedding. So Astrin seems to believe that she's uh, some sort of shapeshifter impersonating Ariel, but the king doesn't believe him. So that's why he, he left. Um, which again, that would also, this is an example of, <clears throat> uh, sometimes I think, uh, the foreshadowing in this was was really good. In fact, when I went back and reread the book, getting ready for this episode, I was impressed with all the the, the foreshadowing that was subtly put into the the first half of the book. Like um, we just mentioned, King Har and his shape shifting. You know, there's this you know kind of this offhand story that Ohm tells <clears throat> uh, Morgan about the shape shifting King Har, and then Har and his shape shifting become very important about three quarters of the way through the book. So that was impressive. But, uh, you know, here we kind of learn like, you know, on page two of chapter four about, you know, oh, that, you know, that merchant <laughs> is a shapeshifter, right? And then, oh, you know, the king's wife is a shapeshifter. And then, oh, you know, Morgan gets attacked by a shapeshifter, uh, you know, three page, three pages later. So uh, sometimes the foreshadowing is a little rushed or just a little obvious. It's like, oh, well, this new concept is was just introduced. And then it after you see it happen a couple of times, it's like, oh, well, this is kind of just like a dead giveaway about what's going to happen in the second half of this chapter. But um, I guess that's one of the trade-offs of having a shorter epic fantasy, right? You know, uh, if you're listening to this, you probably you're probably a big fan of the the doorstopper books like Robert Jordan and, and Brandon Sanderson, which which are great. But sometimes you want a shorter story, and you know, you don't have 500 pages to to, <laughs> to set things up, so more of an observation than a, than a criticism. <clears throat> um, but let's see. Uh, like I said, um, Astrin falls asleep that night. Morgan goes out in the hall to play that harp again that apparently only he can play. 
then Ariel shows up. Um, and uh, I don't know if this is smart or not on Morgan's part, but you know he sees her and is like, Astrin told me that you're dead. And <laughs> she responds to him, no, you are. <laughs> so uh, come becomes pretty obvious here that, uh, that she's out to get him. Um, <clears throat> she is older than the earliest riddle that was ever asked. So she is some ancient creature, it seems like. Um, and I like this, the wise man can give a name to his enemy, which, you know, a subtle insult here to Morgan, who's supposed to be good at riddles, right? But he has no idea who she is. So kind of saying he is a, he's, he's a fool because he doesn't know who she is. Um, there was a little girl with Ariel when she enters, but she shapeshifts into a, a large man with a sword. Uh, so there's more than one shapeshifter. Uh, but Morgan uses his harp to shatter the man's sword. So not only... Is he uh, the only person able to draw songs out of it? But it's a magic harp. Uh, we quickly learn after this incident that the harp belonged to Yerth, Y-R-T-H, who is one of the wizards from Lungold, uh, Death the Harpist. He was actually there when Yerth made it. Uh, the noise of the, the shattering sword, and there's a bunch of like shields and decorative stuff, I guess, in the hall that also shatter when Morgan uses the harp. The noise brings others out into the hall. Uh, Ariel reverts back to kind of her shy king's wife, and, uh, you know, nothing happens uh, at that point, though Morgan has kind of figured out that maybe Astrid is right about the whole shape-shifting thing. <laughs> uh, we have a quick little scene after that where we learn that the king had met Morgan's parents in Cainthard uh, right before they boarded the ship that killed them, and Morgan's father had bought the harp for Morgan. Um, that's how uh, the king... The king was familiar with the harp when, it, uh, when the fisherman brought it to him. He remembered seeing it with Morgan's father previously. Uh, and Morgan slowly starts to put together that maybe someone sank the ship on purpose so that the harp with the stars didn't get to the boy with the stars on his face. You know, at this point, he, he really just wants to go home and not get involved uh, in this game. He knows he's going to get pulled into this, this riddle game about the stars, and he's not going to be able to get out of it. But at this point... He really still just wants to go home and be the farmer on head. <clears throat> um, the next night, the shapeshifter comes to Morgan at night impersonating Astrin and uh, tries to smother him with a pillow, but the king intervenes. Uh, the shapeshifter turns into a bird and plucks out one of the real Astrin's eyes and escapes, but you know, finally it's revealed that the king's wife all this time has been a shapeshifter kind of infiltrating his court. Um... You know, and then this brings us to plot point one, which is where the our hero finally decides, okay, I've got to go on this adventure. You know, he, you know, Morgan says, I can't deny that these stars on my face uh, may be deadly to those that I love. So he's going to go to Erlen Star Mountain and ask the High One what exactly is going on here. <clears throat> uh, so that brings us to, I guess, what's the start of Act Two of the story? Death and Morgan begin to travel north. Um. Let's see. Death kind of gives us a little more details about the harp. Um, Yurth's harp that was made a thousand years ago that Morgan now has. Um, it seems that Yurth knew there was going to be someone with the three stars uh, and made it specifically for Morgan, even though that was a thousand years ago. So how did he know that? And more importantly, why are these stars never mentioned in Yurth's writings or the writings of other wizards? Apparently, Yurth knew something about them, but remember... Master Ohm and Morgan spent a whole winter 
at the College of Riddlemasters trying to figure out what these stars are all about, and they found nothing. Um, They meet this woman, Lyra, on the road, who is the head of a small army of female uh, warriors. In fact, to this point, I was thinking uh, the cast was a little... uh, was a little male heavy here, but then we now we get Lyra and her army of uh, of female warriors or or guards. She's been tasked with bringing Morgan and Death to uh, to the uh, the Morgul, who is a leader, the the leader of the of the land that they're in now. Um, let me see, I didn't. Uh, Hurun, H E R U N, the Morgul of of Hurun. Um, Morgan doesn't want to delay his trip to the High One, but then Lyra tells him that the the Morgul has a riddle for Morgan that holds your name. Uh, and the riddle is, Who is the Starbearer, and what will he loose that is bound? Uh, Morgan kind of freaks out when he hears this, and he, he tries to run away. But uh, Death goes after him and points out that uh, there are those like Ariel, the shapeshifter, who won't stop until he's dead. Um... You know, and obviously, if Morgan goes home, he's going to bring that the, those murderous intentions with him. So he he kind of finally, you know, he realized back in the previous chapter that he needs to go ask the high one questions. But now he's kind of realizing, you know, you know, I can't go back home because it's going to be dangerous for the other people there. Um, you know, Death obviously kind of knows more about the stars than he is is letting on here. You know, there's this passage on page. 85. There's a lot of mysterious stuff about death again. You know, why is the High One's harpist such an important figure? I mean, usually musicians aren't that important uh, in the grand scheme of things. That wasn't, that may have come out as an insult to musicians. That was, that was unintentional, but especially in fantasy stories, usually it's not the harp player who is a, who's a powerful being. Usually it's the, the wizard or the, the sword master or whatever. Um, but let's see. Uh, what is this passage here? Let's see. You know, I'm not exactly finding... I'm not finding the exact passage here on page 85. But um, the bottom line is, is you know, Death kind of implies that he knows more about the stars than he's able to tell based on his current instructions from the High One. But But I swear this... Uh, Death said, if you finish this harsh journey to Erlenstar Mountain, I will give you anything you ask of me. I will give you my life, because you bear three stars. So, um, obviously Death must know something about the importance of these three stars, because he is willing to sacrifice his life <laughs> for them. Uh, so we uh, we continue on to, to Hurin, uh, in the Morgul, who has this riddle about the three stars. Uh, these people kind of seem like this world's analog of the elves to me. I mean, I guess this is kind of a loose comparison, but you know, I think someone, I read someone who compared this story favorably to uh, Tolkien. Oh yeah, A Reader's Guide to Fantasy. It is a rare thing that Patricia McKillop has done to write a fantasy trilogy good enough to be compared to Tolkien. And I gotta be honest, when I read the first chapter, I was like, this has a long way to go before it's compared to Tolkien, but... I became increasingly, <laughs> increasingly uh, impressed as I as I went along here. You know, we get the the description here uh, of the uh, of the Morgul at page eighty seven of the uh, 
of the book here. She was a tall woman with blue-black hair drawn back from her face, falling without a ripple against her loose robe of leaf-green cloth. Her house was a vast oval of black stone. Water from the river flowing beneath it fanned out over stone fountains in her yard formed tiny streams and pools where fish slipped like red and green and gold flames beneath the tracery of shadows from the trees. Um, I don't know. It invoked some images of, uh, some elf-like images for me anyway. Uh, we also learn that she has what's called the gift of sight, which allows her to see through things uh, and also see things that are occurring very far uh, away. Uh, she says that she found this riddle about the stars in a book that had been locked by a wizard. Uh, the wizard if of the unpronounceable name. <laughs> that kind of sounds like something from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, if I'm being honest. Though uh, his name had to be sung as well as pronounced in order to open the book. I thought that was kind of that was kind of cool. Uh, kind of incorporating uh, music into the pronunciation of a thing. I thought that was neat. Uh, the Morgul says she asked Master Ohm uh, about the riddle once, but he said he knew nothing of it. Uh, and then she kind of drops this bomb out of nowhere that Ohm's name uh, reminds her of, again, Gistescholom. <laughs> yeah, um, Gistesel. There is too many vowels in some places and not enough vowels in others, and too many letters in general for this name. I just started calling him G in my notes. But it's G and then a bunch of letters and then Ohm are the last three letters. So she's like, oh, well, you know, Master Ohm reminds me of this guy's much longer name that ends with Ohm, uh, who was the founder of the Lungold Wizards who disappeared 700 years ago. Um, and she also thinks that uh, that uh, G. Ohm uh, is the same person who he both founded and destroyed Lungold. Uh, she speculates that he brought the wizards together in order to control them and purposefully keep them ignorant of the riddle of the stars. Um, though this all seems like a lot of speculation at this point. Um, I think most of this turns out to be true, so I think this is maybe an example of a bit of heavy-handed foreshadowing here. Um, you know, The only proof she has at this point is that her sight could not pass through Ohm, uh, even though it can pass through anything else. Uh, so she found that suspicious. But uh, if her speculations... Uh, are true, then, you know, why? Why would uh, Ohm, or G-Ohm, as it were, um, you know, why would he found Lungold and then and then destroy it? Um, you know, as we get a little further, it seems likely he probably destroyed Lungold in order to keep the riddles about the three stars a secret. Um, <clears throat> for what it's worth, the Morgul believes that the shapeshifters are a different problem from Ohm. Uh, you know, the evidence for that is, well, he could have just killed Morgan while he was at the college if Ohm was running the shapeshifters who were trying to kill Morgan now. So we seem to have kind of our two sides here, Ohm and whoever he leads, whether it's the wizards or someone else, and then the shapeshifters. Uh, and then, you know, relatedly, are the shapeshifters in league with that creature from the sea that we saw earlier and are maybe leading a rebellion of the coastal lords? You know, there's a lot of pieces on the board here at this point. <clears throat> Um, you know, when Lyra hears about all these people who are, you know, maybe trying to attack, uh, Morgan, uh, Lyra's like, well, I should teach you how to defend yourself, Morgan, but, uh, Morgan refuses. In fact, uh, when they gave him a new set of clothes after he arrived in Heron, they gave him a belt knife, but he did not put it on. 
you know, and Morgan explains that head is peaceful. The piece of head is passed like the land rule from ruler to ruler. It is bound into the earth of head, and it is the high one's business, not mine, to break that peace. So uh, Morgan's a bit of a pacifist here. <clears throat> or at least the people of head are pacifists in general, and Morgan uh, is trying to cling to that prior identity of being from head. <clears throat> so he is not going to learn how to defend himself. Um, the Morgul of Huron also notes that she saw Yurth's harp with a traitor last year before it ended up with Morgan's father. Uh, so she's going to try to get more information about who that traitor was um, for Morgan, though. That kind of went down a black hole, and we never hear anything else about that, at least in uh, book one of the trilogy here. Um, that night, Morgan goes to bed with uh, Lyra guarding his door. He's attacked that night by a shapeshifter. It seems to be a different shapeshifter than Ar the Ariel, the one from that attacked him prior. Uh, this is a shapeshifter with a harp of bones and polished shells. Um, its song makes Morgan sluggish, and the, the song the shapeshifter sings is a song about the crops of head failing, drying up, and withering. Uh, Morgan finally kind of, uh, you know, uh, is able to get himself out of the trance and gets into a wrestling match with the shapeshifter. Shapeshifter is changing into to various shapes, various animals, and inanimate objects to try to escape Morgan's grasp. Finally, he changes into a sword with three stars, and uh, Morgan kind of flinches back from it. But that finally, uh, you know, causes Lyra to turn around and see the attack. Apparently the shapeshifter was using an illusion of silence, so she was kind of like still standing right at the door while uh, Morgan is getting <laughs> is getting beat up. Um, when she sees the attack, she throws her spear at the shapeshifter but misses. Uh, but then Morgan picks up the spear and uses it to kill uh, the shapeshifter. <clears throat> so kind of, again, uh, you know, as soon as we learn that Morgan is a as a pacifist, you know, I got to oh, well, that probably means he's going <laughs> to, he's going to have to kill someone here pretty soon. So that happens at the end of the chapter. Um, with the shapeshifter dead though, uh, Morgan, uh, just wants to go home because he realizes that no man could accept the name of the stars on that store, on that sword and, uh, still keep the land rule of head. This is kind of the, the midpoint of the story. Usually at the midpoint, there's either, either some sort of, false victory or false defeat for the for the main character <clears throat> um you know th in this instance i believe this this would be considered a false defeat you know morgan had decided that he needed to uh travel to erlen star mountain to protect the ones that he loved um you know but he gets to the midpoint and you know he realizes um you know that's not that's not going to be enough, right? If he actually goes on this quest, you know he's gonna kind of he he may lose the ones that he loves, right? Um, so he was not going to Erlenstar Mountain for the right reasons. Um, <clears throat> so that's why he again decides he just wants to run away to go home. <clears throat> uh, in fact, that's kind of what he says here. It's not death I'm afraid of. It's losing everything I love for a name and a sword and a destiny I did not choose and will not accept. I would rather die than lose the land rule. Um, so Morgan leaves Hearn, Huron, Heron, Hearn, H-E-U-R-E-N, <laughs> for the coast. He wants to find a ship home to head. Um, on the way, this is just a quick aside, but I think it's interesting. You know, the, the, the land rule is kind of the high one's only real law, and the way that works is, 
You know, anyone who tries to start a war, who tries to steal land, loses their power of the land rule. Uh, and the rulers love that power so dearly that they dare not, you know, risk doing anything to lose it. So that kind of keeps everyone in check. There's never any, you know, big wars or big attempted land grabs because the high one can just pluck that power away from the land rulers you know morgan says even wizards would never have dreamed of trying to kill a land ruler so that kind of drives home the point of you know how dangerous this threat that's chasing morgan is it's kind of flaunting the high ones uh one law right and seem to be getting away with it um so on the way to the coast morgan stops at a tavern uh he gets into this conversation with a trader about the wolf of osterland who is king har who we uh, heard about in that story from Master Ohm back in Chapter 2. You know, you wonder if Ohm was trying to subtly, uh, you know, uh, remind Morgan about Har, because it's what Har teaches, is about to teach Morgan here is very important. But it turns out Har also has a riddle um, about the three stars. What will one star call out of silence, one star out of darkness, and one star out of death? Uh... Morgan, uh, after hearing this, Morgan kind of has this epiphany at night, right? He realizes what had upset Rude so much earlier. You know, if if Morgan was going to offer uh, the piece of head to Rude's sister, Ray Durrell, that would have been a lie, right? Uh, He couldn't go uh, to her claiming honor for winning a riddle game when he was ignoring even more important riddles. Uh, and reaching out to her would have been like reaching out to the strangeness and, uh, and uncertainty of his other name while simultaneously, uh, you know, ignoring it, right? You know, on the one hand, he would be saying, well, I can marry you because I'm this great riddle master, right? But on the other hand, he's like, well, but I'm ignoring this riddle over here, even though it's maybe the most important riddle in the whole world. <laughs> um, so he kind of sees the, the hypocrisy here of... Uh, you know, kind of ignoring who he really is. <clears throat> he can either return to head quietly uh, without Ray Durrell and kind of wait for the storm to come, uh, or he can set his mind to a riddle game that he has no hope of winning. But, um, you know, it seems maybe he is starting to accept who he truly is. You know, he wants Ray Durrell. Uh, he wants to marry her, and the only way to do that is to actually pursue uh, this riddle of the three stars. So he chooses to head to uh, the land of Yair, <laughs> Y-R-Y-E, to ask the king of Osterland a riddle. So that's plot point two, another uh, another major choice from uh, the hero. He kind of shifts from things happening to him to actively doing things, <clears throat> which leads us to act three. Uh, Osterland is in the north, it's cold, and it's ruled by King Har, who can shapeshift, and he was tutored by the wizard Suth, S-U-T-H. Uh, Morgan gets trapped in a blizzard, but he is rescued by a Vesta, who's kind of like this sort of magical, majestic, majestic elk. It's got white fur with gold horns and hooves and purple eyes. Turns out the Vesta that rescues him, of course, is none other than King Har in his shapeshifter form, and he takes Morgan to his house. Uh, in repayment for being saved, Morgan agrees to do whatever Har asks, and uh, of course Har has a very difficult task for Morgan. He wants him to find Sooth the wizard, who Har insists is not dead, because a few years ago he found Sooth's son uh, 
who is a shapeshifter, also able to shapeshift into Avesta, found Sooth's son living, and he was able to look into the son's mind, and he saw Sooth still alive. Um, It also turns out that Sooth gave Har five riddles about the Star Bearer. Uh, If you're interested in referencing those, they're on pages 130 and 31 of the the 1999 uh, Ace Books uh, publication of the, the complete trilogy. Um, I don't think we need to go over each of them now, but one references the ending of an age, or ending of the age. Um, you know, so the fact that Sooth knew all these riddles about the Star Bearer uh, convinces Morgan to go find him so he can ask Sooth how he learned the riddles. <clears throat> um, again, this is interesting. So Sooth is another wizard from Longold, but again, there is nothing about the Star Riddles in any of their writings. Uh, when he, when Morgan and Ohm searched for them earlier. <clears throat> um, so uh, once Morgan decides he will do what Har has asked, Har teaches Morgan how to defend himself from others trying to break into his mind. And then he teaches Morgan how to shapeshift himself into a Vesta, which again, kind of a little out of nowhere. All of a sudden, Morgan has the power to shapeshift into Vestas. But, you know, whatever. We can, we'll, we'll roll with it here. <laughs> Uh, I also see I'm going way over my self-appointed half-hour timeline, but what are you going to do? We're, we're three-quarters of the way through the book here now. <clears throat> um, after spending some time among Herd's Vesta, uh, Morgan does find Sooth. Uh, apparently he has a blind eye, so he was looking for a one-eyed Vesta, finds them. Uh, but Sooth said he's already dead by speaking to Morgan, but Morgan pleads with him, you know, you got to help me, Sooth. you got to tell me what's going on with these stars. Um, uh, more, and, you know, Sooth agrees to help him, but then he suddenly begins to choke. Um, uh, you know, or well, I should say Morgan asks him why he ran away from Lungold. Uh, Sooth begins to answer, but he begins, but he starts choking, um, and dying. Um, and he just manages to croak out the word Ohm before dying. So it seems like he ran away from Lungold because of Ohm. Um, <clears throat> from here... Uh, Morgan brings news of Sooth's death back to Har and then travels on to Isig, which is the last land in the north before Erlenstar Mountain. King Danon Isig is there. He's a shapeshifter too, though he shapeshifts into trees, uh, which is uh, interesting, but I guess it's it's pretty easy to hide if you can change into a tree in a forest. <clears throat> um, all of the realm's great craftsmen came from Isig, so I guess these guys are kind of like the dwarves <laughs> of uh, of Patricia McKillop's land here. Uh, a man named Sol Isig cut the stars that are set into Yurth's harp, which Morgan now has. <clears throat> um, oh, it just occurred to me that I guess maybe harpists have some power here in this land because apparently harps can have magical properties like shattering other people's swords, so... Maybe in a way, death is kind of like a, a sword master. <clears throat> that thought just popped into my mind while I, when I was reading that. Uh, anyway, um, the kind of the, the main castle or building or house on Isig is built on top of the Cave of the Lost Ones, which was discovered by Yurth. There's some great shadow that lies there that shouldn't be disturbed, according to the wizard Yurth. Uh, Danon, who again is the king of Isig, can tell something terrible happened there long ago, maybe during the time of the Earthmasters, who again are those mysterious people who disappeared from the land long ago that Astrin was investigating with his archaeology. 
Um, so Morgan arrives at Isig. He goes to sleep that night, and a voice in a dream tries to make him walk to the cave. But then Death the Harpist shows up and wakes Morgan up. Uh, Morgan asks Death if Ohm is the founder of Longold, and Death kind of evades again. Uh, which, you know, let's be honest, Death, if Death, <laughs> if death uh, isn't answering that question, it seems pretty obvious at that point that that Ohm is, uh, is also, uh, you know, Gissel Ohm or G Ohm or however you pronounce his name, uh, the founding wizard of, of Lungold. <clears throat> uh, you know, Morgan speculates and worries that whatever it was that killed the Earth Masters is now plotting to kill the High One, and we learn that, you know, if the High One dies, all of the, you know, the land rule will fall apart, and, you know, everything will fall apart without the land rule. Um, Death kind of seems to agree with that analysis. He also notes that Yurth made a sword with three stars in it and buried it where that sword was forged with, uh, what a coincidence, was Isig Mountain. So uh, Death figures that that sword is in the cave of the Lost Ones. And again, remember, Morgan saw this sword when one of the shapeshifters changed into it uh, several chapters back. And Death points out that the shapeshifter... Must have known about that sword, right? And so they'll likely be waiting for him to claim it. So uh, there's going to be shapeshifters hiding in Isig Mountain, it would seem. <clears throat> uh, Morgan also speculates that Sol Isig was perhaps killed because he saw that the sword was in that cave and the shapeshifters wanted to uh, uh, keep the sword a secret. You know, they don't want the man with the three stars getting his hands on the sword with the three stars. Again, we don't exactly know why obviously morgan slash the star bearer slash the man with the three stars on his face is some sort of savior that's gonna keep the shapeshifters from shapeshifters from doing whatever they intend to do uh but it's not morgan's intention to go claim the sword right now he wants to go talk to the high one first he'll just leave it here in Issing mountain let me argue with my fate a little longer he asks death <laughs> um let's see um, one Denon, King Denon's grandchildren, his name is Bear, he's very interested in seeing the sword and volunteers to take Morgan to the cave of the Lost Ones, but Morgan declines because he does not want to go claim the sword yet. <clears throat> um, but of course he goes to bed that night and that same dream voice leads Morgan to the cave, so he gets to the cave anyway. Uh, in that cave there are beings made of stone that appear to him who are the children of the Earth Masters. Um... They were destroyed by the Great War. I think that's the first time we see the, quote, Great War referenced. Yeah, so there was some battle long ago. And they were mastered by the Earth, which, reading between the lines, seems to mean that somehow their their Earth mastery was turned against them. So they've been trapped in this cave ever since. But they say a man of peace was promised to them. Uh, and, of course, one of them, one of these children of the Earth, hands Morgan a sword, which is the sword with the three stars on it. Morgan kind of... Uh, interrogates the children a little uh they say those from the sea destroyed them some people named adolin and sec who at this point we don't know who they are <clears throat> though i'll be honest i did not read books two or three yet to make sure i didn't give you any spoilers but i looked adolin and sec up in the glossary of the book there's a little glossary at the back and it says they are earth masters so that's interesting so it seems maybe there's some split amongst the Earth Masters, and they let some beings out of the sea that destroyed them. I don't know. We'll have to. You'll have to read books two and three to find that out. Uh, Morgan uh, can help uh, the children who are trapped here in this cave by quote freeing the winds, and then they 
they referenced uh, one of these riddles that we kind of heard before. They say, uh, one star will call out of silence the master of the winds, one star out of darkness the master of darkness, one star out of death the children of the masters of the earth. And then they add, you have called, they have answered. And again, the they there is a little ambiguous, I noticed. Are they saying the children, just the children have answered, or are they saying all the people they, that were just mentioned here. So the master of the winds, the master of darkness, and the children of the masters of the earth have answered. Uh, unclear at this point, though. So here's, that's again, that's referencing the, the riddle that Har had earlier. <clears throat> um, also, this would be the dark night of the soul point here, kind of the all is lost moment. You know, the, the children drop here. Well, the war is not finished. So the war that destroyed the Earthmasters only silenced for the regathering, whatever that means. Then um, they tell Morgan, you will bear stars of fire and ice to the ending of the age of the High One. Um, so it seems like they're predicting the death of the High One, which again will be a disaster for the land here, right? <clears throat> Morgan obviously has more questions for the children, but then this... A uh, beautiful woman appears amongst the children, and the children begin to melt back into stone. Um, they don't come right out and say this, but this would seem to be Ariel, the same shapeshifter that attacked Morgan uh, way back in Chapter 4. <clears throat> uh, Morgan rushes out of the cave uh, and sees uh, men of the color and movement of the seas with lanterns kind of coming up the uh, the cavern towards him, so it seems that maybe the shapeshifters... And those creatures from the sea are in league after all. Uh, but Bear shows up. Remember, he's the grandchild who was interested in finding the sword in the first place. And he helps Morgan escape. Uh, Morgan has been holding on to the sword the whole time. Uh, and he beats three shapeshifters in a fight, killing all of them uh, with that sword. There's a nice action scene on pages 169 and 170 that I thought was very well written here let's see uh, morgan stared down at his limp motionless body looking oddly small on the harsh stones so this is bear was just uh injured by uh, one of the shapeshifters um you know and morgan remember does not really want to be a fighter but then something unwieldy uncontrollable shook through him welled to an explosion of fury behind his eyes he ducked a sword thrust that bit at a man like a silver snake. Oops, yeah, excuse me. He ducked a sword thrust that bit at him like a silver snake, pulled the harp strap over his neck and dropped it, then reached for the sword beneath Bear. He plunged through the archway, eluding by a hair's breadth two blades that whistled through the air behind him, caught a third on its way down, brought it up, high upward to a dull ring and blaze of sparks, then loosed it abruptly and slashed sideways. Blood burst like a sun across one shell-colored face. A blaze of fire ripping down his arm caught his attention. He whirled. A blade drove toward him. He sent it spinning almost contemptuously across the floor with a single, two-handed stroke, then reversed the ponderous circle of the blade's sweep and the shape-changer, coughing, hunched himself over the line of blood slashing from shoulder to hip. Yet another blade descended at him like a thread of silver that would have split him. He jerked back from it. He brought his sword down like an axe against a stump in a field, and the shape-changer, catching the blade in his shoulder, pulled it out of Morgan's hands as he fell. 
the silence settled ponderously about him. Um, so yeah, some really good writing there, I thought. But, you know, again, um, you know, Morgan is demonstrating all of these traits that he doesn't seem to believe that he should have, right? All of a sudden, he can beat some people three-on-one in a sword fight, even though, um, you know, a few chapters ago, he refused to even wear a belt knife. <laughs> so, you know, again, is this kind of rushed writing, or is this, you know, I have I have a feeling, based on just, you know, I felt a lot of things were a little rushed, but then when I went back and read and found all the, shadow, the subtle foreshadowing, I'm kind of thinking once I move on to... Uh, uh, the next two books of the series, a lot of these special abilities, Morgan kind of seems to be pulling out of thin air are going to make more sense. <clears throat> um, so that brings, brings us to the final chapter of the book, the final journey to Erlenstar Mountain. Um, Death notes that the High One is a Windmaster, so, you know, is that riddle earlier uh, about freeing the winds, something about freeing the High One? Um, I don't know. What, what does the High One need to be freed from? Um, that's interesting. Is the High One unwillingly serving as the leader of the land, uh, waiting for someone else to take his place? I don't know. <clears throat> uh, and then who is the Master of Darkness that the, the Star Bearer is supposed to be calling forth to? That's not clear at this point. Um, also, I think it's... Uh, King Isig points out, you know, why are they attacking Morgan instead of the High One when killing the High One would destroy the realm? Um, and the answer to that would be seem would seem to be that Morgan is the only one who can answer these riddles uh, about the three stars. And it would seem if you can answer these riddles, then you'll be able to stop the uh, you know the calamity that the shapeshifters and the people from the sea are trying to to reap upon the land here. <clears throat> Uh, let's see, we learn that death is not a lungold wizard. Um, oh, we also, it, we get some kinds of conflicting reports here. Uh, Danon reveals, uh, that Yurth made the harp before the founding of Lungold, um, which doesn't mesh with what death said about being there when Yurth made the harp, right? Because death was born in Lungold. So it seems that death was lying about being there when the harp was made. You know, why would he do that? Um, then, you know, Morgan tries to use a mind probe on death that Har taught him. So remember Har can look into people's minds. Apparently he taught Morgan how to do that as well. But death kind of, uh, death retaliates with a great shout. Remember, um, we saw the great shout back in chapter two when Rude kind of, uh, you know, uh, used it on impulse and broke some stuff. <clears throat> so death uses a great shout on Morgan, um, to kind of, uh, you know, it hurts Morgan not permanently, but uh, you know, Morgan probably shouldn't be trying trying to pry into the mind of someone like Death, who obviously has a has a lot of unknown powers here. <clears throat> um, you know, then De uh, Morgan confronts Death about the lies, and uh, you know, Death basically says, you know, I wasn't lying to you, but you just gotta trust me. Morgan seems to accept that. So, again, you know, why was was death actually there when Yurth made the harp? And if so, why doesn't Danon know that? If death was there when Yurth made the harp, it would seem that death is not who he says he is. That would mean he's probably older than he says he is. It's it's interesting. A lot of question marks around death here. <clears throat> so then they leave Isig. Final trip to Erlenstar Mountain. On the way, death teaches the great shout to Morgan, uh, who then accidentally starts an avalanche when he tries to use it. Um, they reach Erlenstar Mountain. Uh, 
the high one is there in his throne room. It is Ohm, who is also uh, Gissel Ohm, the founder of Lone Gold, and he confirms he is also its destroyer. So Ohm is, in fact, uh, the wizard who founded and destroyed Lone Gold, and he is also the high one. So that all comes together. And then um, Morgan uh, seems to uh, cast a great shout at the very end of the book that splits the doors of the great hall. Let's see. Uh, the very the last paragraph of the book here. No, he whispered. Oh, no. Then he felt the word well up from some terrible source tear out of him, and the barred doors of the high one's house split from top to bottom with the force of that shout. Um, so there, there ends... Uh, book one of the Riddle Master trilogy. Hope that was interesting analysis there. We just we talked for about an hour. <laughs> uh, let's see. My favorite non-main character. I have just a couple other categories here. Um, I mean, I think Death would be an obvious choice, right? He kind of reminds me of the Fool from Assassin's uh, Apprentice a little. <clears throat> um, he's definitely kind of like the the mentor wizard figure here. That you know every hero's journey structure has one of those people you know we, uh, taking our references from earlier we have gandalf in the hobbit and obi-wan kenobi in uh, star wars <clears throat> uh, i also liked lyra she's kind of like the the blunt straightforward warrior type dedicated to her duty uh let me see she had a good quote that i liked here um let me see where did i write that down well, I can't find exactly where I wrote it down, but you know, but she says, you know, I, I, you know, I prefer, I prefer questions I can throw a spear at or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so I love that. Um, let's see a few. T- t- I won't go through all of these. These will be in the in the notes here. But some some examples of prose I liked here. Um, someone, uh, let's see, someone talking to 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 Morgan. Morgan tells him he should take up music or something. This is right after he got punched in the face by his brother. And the person responds, you know, I'm as musical as a tin bucket. Your mouth looks like a squashed plum. <laughs> I thought was funny and good description, I think. Um, let's see. The man could find a pinhole in a mist, you know, describing someone who's uh, really observant. Um, let's see. The shadows flitted away in the room set hunched in corners behind furniture. Let's see. Just Stone's silence and a terrible sense of something lying just beyond eyesight, like a dread in the bottom of your heart. Uh, His blood panicked through him. All right, so just a few examples of of nice writing there that I thought. Uh, Let's see, maybe a couple... uh, Just one arthurial observation here. There is a save the cat moment in the book. Uh, there's this kind of idea that if you want to, um, <clears throat> if you want to create some sympathy for your main hero early on, they should do something nice in the beginning, right? Like you know, rescuing a cat from a tree—that's the save the cat moment. But you know, in the opening pages, um, uh, Morgan's brother says he wishes he had a fast horse from this particular realm, uh, and then later in chapter one, Morgan says, uh, totally. There's really no connection between these two things, but he says offhand, oh, he's going to market to go look for a horse uh, from that realm, um, which is kind of a subtle save the cat moment. Oh, well, he's going to go find the horse that his brother wanted. So I thought that was that was interesting. <clears throat> uh, 
a few hot take predictions here for about what's going to happen in the next two books. I've got three. Uh, I think Death is an Earthmaster or a child of an Earthmaster. Maybe he's the High One's son, uh, though he did seem to imply at some point that he didn't know who his father was. I think he says something along the lines of, well, he went to study in Lungold for a while because he thought maybe his father was a wizard. So maybe he's not the High One's son, or if he is, he doesn't know. I could be way off with that guess, but death, obviously, there's lots of mystery around him that I assume we're going to learn more about. Um, I also thought maybe he was a wizard, but death comes right out and says, well, he says he wasn't a Lungold wizard, right? So I guess he could be a different type of wizard. I don't know. Um, Maybe death was the singer from Ohm's story in chapter two, the one that offended King Har. You know, death does not go uh, to King Har's realm for what that's worth. Um, You know, he does vow to give his life for Morgan because he has the three stars and now the children of the Earth Masters seemed really into the three stars riddle. So, you know, again, maybe that's how he relates to the Earth Masters there. Um, let's see. And it would seem he's not an enemy. Um, you know, there's a bit of an ominous ending at the at this book, but you know, the Morgul of Hearn, they he I didn't talk about this, but Death and the Morgul of Hearn seem to be a couple. Um and she has that gift of sight that lets her see through people. So if if death was uh, a bad guy, it doesn't seem that the Morgul of Hearn would be with him. Um, also, I thought it was interesting. At one point, death says he only ever talked to to Ohm twice, so that the leader of the wizards. Uh, and he thought there there was no evidence that would have made him think that you know Master Ohm was was Gissel Gissel Ohm or or whatever. Uh, so was the high one deceiving death? Maybe the high one is a shapeshifter too, or was death just lying when he, when he said that? I don't know. Uh, let's see a couple other quick predictions here. Uh, by the end of the second book, Morgan will have an opportunity to safely return to head, but he will voluntarily refuse it for misguided reasons. Um, that's just kind of straight out of the hero's journey. Usually at some point the hero has a chance to return home, uh, but something has happened that causes them not to want to go. Um, but I think by the end of book three, he'll end up returning to head and he will marry uh, Ray Durrell. Usually the hero's journey ends up with sort of a happy ending like that. <clears throat> um, let's see. And then finally, I think the Lungold wizards were the remaining earth masters after that great war. They must have developed some way to restrain the people from the sea who destroyed their civilization. Uh, and then the High One destroyed Lungold when there was some sort of schism that developed between the wizards over freeing the ones uh, from the sea. <clears throat> so we'll see if that pans out. Uh, let's see a few of my favorite quotes here to finish up. Um, if you're new to the show, I usually do a quote of the week and then write an essay about it. Um, I didn't have time to do that this week, and we're already an hour over an hour into the show here, so... Let's see, I'll just, I'll just read a couple of these quickly then, quickly here. Uh, Turn forward into the unknown rather than backward toward death. It's at page 76. Uh, when you open your mind and hands and heart to the knowing of a thing, there is no room in you for fear. That's also on page 76. Uh, oh, here, you can, <laughs> uh, let's see. I think Morgan said this in response to something that Lyra had said, but you can't solve riddles by killing people. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then that was on page 93, and then page on page 94, I prefer problems I can throw spears at. Um, 
and then this is a quote from death. Someone accuses it, or someone says, uh, you know, death shouldn't be giving, or death says he's not allowed to give advice or something like that. He can only do what the high one tells him to do. And then I think, I think it's Lyra again. She says, well, you were arguing with Morgan earlier. And Death's like, I didn't argue. I simply pointed out the illogic of his arguments. <laughs> um, and then there's a, a long one here on page 130. I think this is Har saying this to Morgan. Will you doom us all with your own refusal to look at yourself and give a name to what you are? The wise man knows his name. You are no fool. You can sense as well as I can what chaos is stirring beneath the surface of our existence. Loose your grip on your past. It is meaningless. Your land, your land can exist without you, but if you run from your own destiny, you are liable to destroy us all. <clears throat> uh, let's see. And then the last one here. The wise man assumes nothing. Page 149. Um, so there you go. That's my discussion of Riddle Master of Head by Patricia A. McKillop. Uh, if you found this interesting, uh, shoot me an email, dtkane at dtkane.com. Um, I'm going to try to do an episode like this, you know, once maybe every other month, so maybe six times uh, a year. Um, and if you, uh, you know, if you found my analysis interesting, maybe you'll like my fiction and you can tune into. Uh, the regular episodes of D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club, where I uh, narrate my own fiction. Um, you know, I said there there are five books in my spoken book series so far. I have read the entirety of the first one so far on the podcast, and we're about mm, four fifths of the way through the second book. So you can kind of get some some audio fiction for free if you're kind of if you're willing to to listen to it slowly over the course of many weeks as I narrate it on my own or um you can also check out my books at dtkane.com or most places uh you can buy ebooks uh you know amazon barnes and noble google kobo apple those places <clears throat> they're also available in print uh on amazon and barnes and noble um and it's the show is available at all the the normal places that you listen to podcasts and also on YouTube, and if you're wondering why I'm wearing this crazy hat, it's because the main character in my Spoken Books Uprising series wears a hat just like this, so maybe you can go check it out. Um, but if you have any comments, good or bad, about uh, this discussion here, or if you have questions about Riddle Master that you'd maybe like to hear me answer on a subsequent show, uh, you can email me, dtkane at dtkane.com. Um, that's, uh, you know, Delta... Delta Theta Kane, K-A-N-E at dtkane.com. Um, I also have a weekly newsletter where I, you know, give analysis of a quote of the week each week. It's my fantasy quote of the week. You know, I'm kind of on a crusade to show that you can get cool real-life lessons out of quotes from fantasy books. Um, I also, of course, share news about my uh, about my current writing projects and um i share photos of the week as well i'm a hobbyist photographer and share some neat photos so if any of that sounds interesting you can go to dtkane.com and, and sign up for my once weekly newsletter um i always try to put something of value in there like my quotes of the week um so it's not just a it's not just a big advertisement in your mailbox once a week there's actually some interesting stuff in there um so that's all if you made it all the way to the end of this hour and 15 minute episode i commend you Thank you for listening. 
and until next time, this has been D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. Thanks for listening to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. If you liked today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube, give this video a thumbs up if you liked it and hit that subscribe button and the bell so you get notified whenever new episodes become available. If you'd like to listen to back episodes or review the show notes, visit dtkane.com slash podcast. D.T. Kane's novels are available for purchase at most major online retailers, or you can purchase directly from his website at www.dtkane.com books. You can receive a free short story and sign up for D.T. Kane's mailing list at dtkane.com email dash sign up. If you'd like to connect, you can find D.T. Kane on Facebook at D.T. Kane Author or Twitter at D.T. Kane Author, or send D.T. Kane an email at dtkane at dtkane.com. See you next week.